graciously comfort and tend all who are imprisoned, hungry, thirsty, naked, and miserable, also all widows, orphans, sick, and sorrowing. In brief, give us our daily bread, so that Christ may abide in us and we in him forever, and that with him we may worthily bear the name Christian. Amen. Now, I, how we didn't give the source for that is beyond me, because I think I sent it from my email with a source, but I just want to say, that is a brilliant prayer for a whole bunch of reasons. One is, it takes daily bread as encompassing, not just you getting food on your table or getting a paycheck this week. Daily bread talks about the imprisoned, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the miserable, the orphans, the widows, and the sorrowing. So give us this day. I sort of ended with thy kingdom come, thy will be done, which is your begging heaven to come to earth. And when it comes, everybody is satisfied. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth is, give us this day our daily bread. Let your kingdom come to earth. Let it have its way with us. And when it has its way with us, let us all be healed and full. That's brilliant. And when it ties it back then to the name Christian, which is the name you get at your baptism, you can hardly help but think about daily bread as being Eucharistic. I mean, you, can just, you can just hardly, you know, I, I mean, I know it's about having macaroni and cheese on the table tonight. I know that. But it's also, it's also at least it's also about coming to the altar today and uh, remembering your baptism. Because that's the way things come. I mean, it's just, this is just the way life is. So, you know, say your own prayers. But I love you on the days when you can pray better than that. All the good old things and then the next new, good new thing. So if you could write a prayer better than that, we'd love to put it in the bulletin. Just keep going. And better, of course, means what's mature, what's obedient, what's insightful according to Christ. We did that, you know, a year or two ago when we did Philippians. Uh, just, just sit back and relax and listen to this. <clears throat> James, a slave of God and of Christ Jesus, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet all kinds of trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let boast the lowly brother in his exaltation, and the rich in his exaltation, because like the flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So the rich man will fade away in all his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay? 
So I um, give you a little bit of review. This is so you should have. Everybody has a thing that says number six at the top. You got that? You got that with you? Okay. Anybody need that? Heather's right there. She'll have one for you. Anybody need that? You know, you start these and you always think, I promised Gainey he could go next week, and then I unpromised him because I don't know if we can get through this. But you know, he'll he'll live, and you'll get something good from him at some point. You get eight verses into the book of James and your whole life is turned upside down. And that's what it is to be a Christian. I am observing at the Eucharist, and I haven't even talked to you about this yet, I haven't talked to Pastor Nelson either, I'm observing your stress at the Eucharist. There is a way that, um, as I said to the boys in the back today, the Eucharist has become a grind for many of you. But I likened it to the way that the way you know Tiger Woods says sometimes after he shot 67 says, but yeah, it was a grind today, you know. So one man's grind is another man's, um, you know, perfection. I can see it in you, you know. It is it's a different Eucharist than it was a year ago. I can see it. You know, people are a little frayed at the edges for all sorts of reasons. The, I mean, it's better to be lucky than good. You couldn't have a better set of texts for this. Count it all joy, verse 2 means you have to completely change the way you think about the world. If you're Christian, you think about the world in a different way. And that's what we've done the past few weeks, which is you just you engage the world in a different way. So, eight verses in, a little bit of review. The Bishop of Jerusalem, James the Just, James the Righteous, James the Brother of Jesus, whatever that means for you, um, starts by asking you to reconsider yourself. One of the things that happens when the world frays a bit, and I've said this a couple times, but I want to be very clear about this. You sort of, um, you default to your feelings. You default to your impulses. You default to your own thoughts. Um, And so you see now, I'm not privileging either emotion or reason. What happens to us normally when we're troubled is that we default to our own thoughts. The problem is we confess, we know we are ruined. So our emotions are ruined and our our reason is ruined. And the only way out of that is having your reason and your emotions captive to Christ. If they're captive to Christ, if you count it all joy, a very strange way to talk about your sufferings. I'll just tell you, walking around at the Eucharist, joy is not the way I describe the congregation right now. Frayed, yes. Pressed, mm mm-hmm. You know, rough at the edges, that's it. Joy is not the first way I'd describe it. However, James was also very clear last week that it takes some time to work through temptation, challenge, sifting, to be revealed, and then also to grow. And so last week, two weeks ago, we talked about how you have this double thing. You know, people argue about whether challenge reveals character or produces character. The answer is it does both, according to James. It reveals where you are in your spiritual life. And if you let it have its way with you, it also develops you into something better. The tremendous challenge, the Antichrist in a stressful, frayed situation, is if you let yourself default to your natural way. The Jesus way isn't working. We've got to do something else. Okay? That's the great danger. It's easy to be a Christian when things are easy. You know, when they're skinning you alive, when they're baking you at the stake, when they, you know, raise the, raise the bars and let the lions out at the Colosseum, it's more difficult. Okay? 
So many of you are under stress. We understand that. It's extraordinarily difficult. We get that. But what, is, what does James say? James the just, James the righteous, James the brother of Jesus. What does he say? He meant to say cousins Jesus. Uh, you know, what's he say? He means that you, you know, remember who you are. Count it joy. You're Christians. And you're being scattered. You're being afraid. Okay. But if you're Christian, you're a slave. And that is the most, if you wake up with one thought in the morning, you should wake up and say to yourself, I'm a slave. If you all woke up, if we all woke up, if our congregation all woke up, if Christians all over the world woke up and said, I'm a slave, the church would be a different place. Because we all think we're masters. You do and so do I. You think you're master, you think you're master of everything. The hardest thing for us, especially in America, especially in Wheaton, especially for successful people, this is why the warning today is against the rich. Why? Because everything goes for them and they know how to make things work and they're used to being powerful. And it's very difficult then to say, I'll exist at point number two. Humility is the mark of a Christian. Obedience is just active humility. Humility in the biblical definition just means you agree with Jesus, you do what he says. Okay? It's not, it's not so much different from faith. It's very difficult for people who are successful to do that until something happens to you or you get old enough that you realize you're not going to take it with you or you're miserable all the time and you can't keep it hidden anymore, or something else happens. And then at some point, it's not enough just to say, boo, I couldn't get this done. There's, there's life beyond that, which is life where you say, I actually want to engage this joyfully. And part of the good thing about seeing you know, the grim faces at the Eucharist is that they're at the Eucharist. The answer is the rhythm of the Christian life. Nothing has changed. It's just that you've got to do it you got to do it when times are tough and not just when times are good. Okay? That's true for a congregation. That's true for your own life. Everybody can get sloppy when things are good. When things are difficult, that's the time all the resources you've built up over the years now kick into gear. So what we, base it, what we should see, what we should expect to see as we kind of grow in, in, in the difficulties together of the economy, of your own families, of the world, um, what we should see is people beginning to move out of this phase of being tempted and being challenged to receiving those things as a way to show character and develop character. That's what we should see. That should be the thing we should expect to see. So we'll be watching for that. And that's how James talks here. So at the first arrow, if you're a Christian, then you count yourself a slave. And I'm not, uh, you know, not, not being demeaning to you when I say that to you. Uh, Philippians 5, uh, Philippians 2, the great hymn in the early church uh, about Jesus, who, being one with God, did not count that glory a thing to be grasped, but let himself be reduced to the point of a slave. Right? This is, this is uh, you know, when somebody, when I say to you, you're a slave, I'm not saying anything that the Father didn't say to the Son. I'm not saying anything that Jesus didn't willingly accept. Philippians 2, read it. It's probably one of the earliest hymns in the church. You know, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a slave. Now, that's how they confessed in the early church, which was extraordinarily comforting because that means Jesus is human and real just like you are. He suffered just like you are. Jesus is the same. So, and it's, it's quite clear, you know, um, 
it's quite clear that James is the bishop. Uh, there is speculation that this book was not just written to the churches in general, but actually that he's written this to pastors and then it's supposed to trickle down into their churches. You can take that or leave it. It doesn't really matter too much for us except that, because uh, the message is going to be the same. But you, you're under the care of a pastor. You're a slave. You're a slave like Jesus. You're a slave under the care of a pastor. You're a slave within the church. Um, and I, you know, I tried to make a point last week of saying that doesn't in some sense make the, you know, the biggest problem is, the biggest problem maybe with the Luther Church Missouri Synod for pastors is that there's no, there's no master. You know, the pastors are looking for a master. They're slaves looking for a master. At least you know who your masters are. They wear a collar just like your dogs wear a collar. Pastor wears a collar for the same reason a dog wears a collar, because he's got a master. But, you know, we'd like to have that in human form. The way you have it in human form with us, we'd like to have it in human form with a bishop. And that doesn't mean we're knocking on our bishop. We like our bishop. We like Bishop Kilwell. We like him. He's our friend. But um, we're not constituted in a way that he is pastor to pastors. It's unfortunate been constituted that he's more of a CEO than a pastor to pastor. Um, what we need is a pastor. So we have to scramble for that on, on our own. You don't have to scramble for that on your own. You can find your guys. So everybody in utter obedience, and that just means, <clears throat> doesn't mean the arbitrariness of what James would say or what I would say, or what Pastor Gaining or Nelson would say. It means very simply saying and doing what Jesus does. So in Jesus' life phrase, when they're nailing him to the cross, what's he doing? He's saying, first, he is upholding the universe and giving the soldiers breath. I don't know if you ever thought about this. The only reason the soldiers have the strength to nail him to the cross is because he makes their hearts beat. So he, he doesn't slay the people who are nailing him to the cross. He first makes their hearts beat, gives them breath, gives them life. He's remember John 1, the word through whom all things were created. So he gives his creatures life, life enough to bring him to death. And in the midst of that, he says, you know, forgive them. So when Jesus is afraid, what does Jesus do? Jesus utterly is utterly obedient to the Father. When you're afraid, what do you do? You're meant to be utterly obedient to Jesus. That's what faith is, okay? That's what it means to be a slave. So every morning, if you woke up and said, I'm a slave, I can guarantee you, your life would be better, where better means faithful. Maybe not more pleasant, but it would mean more faithful. So start by reconsidering yourself. Then you reconsider the world that's around you, and you give a different definition to joy. I said this a couple of weeks in a row now. I'm still getting the question, so I presume I need to say it again, which is joy is not how you feel. You don't get to decide what joy is. You're a broken creature out of Eden. You have some distant voice or memory of what joy was once upon a time when you walked with God in the garden. But your idea of joy, you have no idea. You have no idea what that means. So the only way for you to know anything is to listen when God tells you what joy is. And God redefines what joy is. Joy is when you talk and walk the way that Jesus talks and walks. It's not just a matter of staying out of hell. I mean, that is just so bare minimum, nonsensical, never what the church was, stupid American way of thinking about the world. Uh, frankly, stupid medieval way of thinking about the world, too. It's not about staying out of hell. It's about living in joy. 
where joy means you say and you do what Jesus says and does. So um, how do you do that? And, and I don't know if you noticed, but you know, that was just kind of a textbook example of A, B, C, D, E. What do you do? When things get difficult, you ignore the world, and then I've sort of put it here toward the bottom of the page, the play for power, you know? Let's get a petition up, let's protest, let's do what we want, let's gossip, let's talk behind people's backs, let's assert ourselves. But we'd be e- we'd be better if we threw some people to the lions. We'd be more Christian, you know. Then we'd sort of test things out. We should get a pet lion. We should be the Saint John lion. So be good. Like you see him on Saturday, those caged lions. Just let it out, run around the congregation every once in a while. Put you and Nelson in charge of that this week. See how that works out, okay? Right? Okay. But not disobedient. Not the lowest common denominator but rather you give a heavenly definition to life on earth. Thy kingdom come means you want the kingdom to come on earth. Thy will be done means we're going to agree with it when it gets here. Give us this day our daily bread is not just about oatmeal for your family at breakfast. It's about all the things we prayed for in that prayer. It's about the world becoming the new Eden and your little piece in that. And the remedy, this is the last thing on the page that says 22, is... In the hail, the joy, that's the word. All those words that come from kara, grace, gift, joy, hail, high, this is great. Because they're all bundled up, because with his greeting, he brings what he says. Hail, O favored one, he says, that says the angel to Mary. With his hailing her, he favors her, brings her the gifts, you see. So that we can live in a Christological peace, okay? So first you reconsider your um, self, and then you reconsider your world, and I'm going uh, to turn the page. Then, you, then, and only then, that's why, you know, Pastor Ganey's little throwaway quote in the sermon this morning about having your family devotions only when, you, only when you feel like it. People only read their Bible when they get all jammed up. Ugh, you know? You need it every day. You make the sign of the cross in the morning, like the catechism says. So on days when you feel too good, you remember that you're a damn sinner and had to be baptized. And on days when you feel too bad, you remember you're not alone and unloved. Making the sign of the cross in the morning, like the catechism says, the great equalizer, you see. So then you're fit to go out into the world. You reconsider yourself, you reconsider your world, then you're fit to go out in ever-increasing loyalty and maturity. You know, why can you be happy when they're skinning you alive? Why can you be happy when they throw you to the lines? Why can you be happy when you're baking like bread? Being burned to death has got to be, you know. One of the things I learned doing a PhD, which is theologians are the best people in the world at being evil. Why do they burn you to death in the Inquisition? You know, because it's hard to get more difficult than that. You know, long, slow death. Well, we're able to see that as an opportunity to become obedient to Christ, which then, in fact, gives us wisdom. If nothing else, you learn that you can make it through. If nothing else, you learn that God doesn't abandon you. And by the by, uh, you know, just as I'm saying this, it's really fairly silly um, to blame your pastor when somebody leaves the church, unless your pastor's actually done something. I'm, well, I've been struck, you know, in part of the fray, you know, people leave the church. And then I'm always struck when people say, what did you do to them? And the answer said, I, my answer is I tried to do the Eucharist to them, but they wouldn't have it. If somebody, you know... Um, 
commits adultery or turns into a witch or stops coming to church or does never had family devotions or only goes to the Eucharist at Christmas, and they, then when things get tough, they have no resources to build up the church. That's, that's not on me. My job is to deliver the goods, and my only purpose in life is to come here every Sunday and deliver the goods. Your job is to receive the goods, and that's true for everybody else. Sometimes I wish there were utter transparency uh, in the church. I wish we were all naked before the Lord and each other with every thought and every action. The world would be a much different place for all of us, including pastors, by the way. It'd be a much different place. But just see the world in a different way. He's telling you how you can be joyful. He's telling you how you can have wisdom. And it has to do with the repeated exposure to the means of grace. Give us this day our daily bread. Boom. Get to the Eucharist and let the kingdom come. So wisdom comes as you stick with it. Um, and as always, and now you hear where Paul and uh, James sort of talk the same way. He's talking about spiritual maturity. You know, I gave you this, oh, at the bottom of the page. You know, this great phrase of N.T. Wright, and I, you know, we're reading this book in a couple of Bible studies, and I know, you know, we didn't give it to you because we agree with everything, but there are some things we wholly agree with, like the phrase, there's life after life after death which means your salvation, your baptism, is the beginning of your life in Christ, not the end. When you are baptized, you are no longer your own. You were bought with a price. You're made the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has moved in. He's taken possession of you. You are a slave. You are not your own. You belong to somebody else. You were bought with a price. You do what you're told. You're utterly obedient. In doing that, you build habit. You build wisdom. You build character. You erase your natural reason. You erase your natural emotion. And you are changed into something that you were not before. You never hear that in popular American Christianity. What you hear is that it will make you strong, that it will make you rich, that it will make you successful, that it will keep you from being left behind when the rapture comes. James isn't talking about any of that. He's talking about the daily grind of frayed lives. People who have just been chased out of their hometown, scattered, the corners of the earth and the way that they survive is by clinging to the gifts with their pastors and anybody who tells you anything else is a liar this is what Jesus says and this is James the brother of Jesus when he stands and speaks he just says James slave greeting and he tells you the score and everybody knew that's the way it was same as it was in Acts 15. Everybody has their say, and then he stands up and says, this is the way it is. To which everybody then said, amen. Okay. Um, you know, you'll have it or you won't have it, but this is what it means to be spiritually mature. If you argue with it, it can't help you. If you argue with Jesus' way, it can't help you. It's not going to force itself on you. 
and you only learn it by doing it. So all of this obedient engagements of ourselves, our church, our world, our lives, and here's the really difficult thing, does not mean, and um, I've, I've always, one of the things I've always been struck with with being a pastor is because we do the liturgy here, people make all kinds of presumptions about my taste in music, my politics, the way I see the world, where I would go and what I don't go, what I eat, what I drink, what I should or shouldn't drive. Hey, once you belong to Jesus, you are free. So what I'm not, I'm not suggesting to you, and you shouldn't understand it this way, you should not understand this as a narrow, primitive way of seeing the world. You should suddenly see the world opening up and expanding right before your eyes. You carry Christ into any situation. You're his, you're safe, and you know what it is that you should do. That's the Christian life. That's why, you know, however you voted last Tuesday, you all ought to be getting along. Because that's just strategy, and that's just temporary. The Lord will sort it out someday. And uh, he's not going to sort it out along, along red and blue, just like he's not going to sort it along, out along Baptist, Catholic, and Lutheran. Okay? Finally, recognize all this is only possible within faith. If you, aren't, if you aren't in the faith, if you aren't at the Eucharist, if you're not baptized, if you don't say your prayers, I don't expect any of this to make any sense. It didn't make sense in the early church. That's why they always called on the mature men and women to, to lead the less mature, and that's why they warn, and Paul warns Timothy, don't be quick when you put hands on somebody to ordain them. If you do, you're going to multiply your problems. You raise people to levels of leadership, and especially the pastorate who aren't ready for it, you're going to multiply your problems. You get the wrong people in the wrong places, you're going to destroy the church. It's 1 Timothy 3, 4, 5, 6. You can read all about it there. So, um, you know, what we're doing on incorporation and participation is a move toward what we're made for. I have to give some lectures. I was thinking about something else during the sermon this morning. But then I heard it and, and once, and here's part of the thing. If you're thinking about something else during the sermon in the morning, it doesn't really bother me. If you sort of move away during the liturgy and it takes you somewhere, don't worry, we'll be here when you get back. So long as uh, what you're talking about is, uh, so I'm listening to you this morning, I, I have to think about some, I have to get some lectures in New York in the spring to some pastors about what Sunday morning is supposed to look like. And you know, how that group found me is beyond me. Um, this will be uh, where Bishop Benke is, the bishop, who was the guy at the, you know, at the, when the trade towers came down. And, um, let's just say I'm not the obvious choice. Uh, but I have great respect for him, by the way, and the way he runs his district, the way he's bishop. So, uh, you know, it's all about what you're supposed to do on Sunday morning. And I'm going to lead by asking whether pastors anymore know what it is that they, they're doing on Sunday morning. I mean, part of it is our fault. Pastors just don't know what they're doing on Sunday morning. They don't know why they're here. They haven't read James. They haven't figured it out. It's beyond getting people out of hell. Of course it's getting people out of hell. That's just life after death. It's about life after life after death. It's not, like, it's not about being a dead Orthodox <laughs> Lutheran who can just repeat the same thing over and over again that somebody told them. It's about taking what you learn here, what you get at the Eucharist, and moving into your life wherever you go this afternoon and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and making Jesus known in those situations. That's the Christian life. It's like being persecuted in Jerusalem 
in 40 or 50 AD and being booted out, and when you arrive in the new place, even though you've been beaten down, everybody knows that your reason that you're there is because of Jesus Christ as your Lord, that you're slave to Christ. That's what it means. And we should probably draw a little bit of breath because um, in some ways, um, that's where the church has been weakest. So at the bottom of 23, as long as we see salvation in terms of going to heaven when we die, if that's all it is, I'm just trying to keep you out of hell. If that's all it is, period, at the end, then go do what you want. Be selfish, be miserly, don't worry about coming to church, Christmas and Easter should do it, we'll inoculate you at the midnight service at the, at the Christmas mass and you're good for another year. If that's all it is, if you can come to church and then go out and live just like a pagan, talk like a pagan, walk like a pagan, gossip, steal, cheat, lie like a pagan, if you can do that, you'd have no clue what you're talking about, and frankly, I wouldn't be that secure in uh, that heaven is your spot. As long as we see salvation in terms of going to heaven when we die, the main work of the church is bound to be seen in terms of saving souls for that future. But when we see salvation as the New Testament sees it, in terms of God's promised new heaven and new earth, and our promised resurrection to share in that new and gloriously embodied reality is what we did last year, the body, the community, the church. What I've called life after life after death, which is, you're baptized, now what do you do? You've been to the Eucharist this morning, now what does your life look like? It should be very, very different. You carry the body and blood of Jesus in you. Don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? You do know that, right? Yeah, you were baptized, boom. All right. Then the main work of the church here and now demands us to be rethought as a consequence. So it doesn't just look like keeping yourself out of hell. It looks much more like, oh, I don't know, generous giving and active mercy and winsome words of witness. It looks much more like a family gathered at the Eucharist every week and scripture and prayer. It looks like Christ being the number one thing and not something we sort of put away like a savings bond for, you know, some day that you can sort of whip out at the ICU point when, you, you know, your throat's going shut. That's not it. That's the first thing, not the last thing. Life before death is what is threatened, called into question by the idea that salvation is mere life after death. You want to know why the church doesn't work? Because the church hasn't thought about the notion that the new Eden is meant to be here in this community among you. It's an extraordinarily difficult thing because at one point um, I want the rebuke, uh, especially your rebuke of each other, that you would be intolerant of miserliness, that you would be intolerant of people who don't come to church every week and break the third commandment, that you would be intolerant of people who gossip and lie, that you would be intolerant of people who don't use Matthew 18 the way it's given to be used in the church. On the one sense, I would very much like you to be intolerant of that. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, I know that's like giving pistols to little kids. Because if you've not come to the point of maturity that James speaks about, you know, poor ca pastoral care is worth than, worse than no pastoral care at all. And poor congregational care is worse than, worse than no congregational care at all. 
However, what I'm interested in and what I think you're interested in by the fact that you stay after an hour on Sunday morning when you could be at Starbucks, what I think that you're interested in is the community that Christ describes. And maybe, just maybe, in this time and place, we could have a crack at it. Just maybe we could make it work. And then just maybe people would come along and be interested not only in life after death, but also in life. You know, and this is not works righteousness, and it's not playing justification off against sanctification. This is saying, for crying out loud, I was dead, now I'm alive. I've been baptized. This matters. Christ bothers himself on a Sunday morning to put himself in the chalice and on the patent. And he cares enough about me and my family to put us together with his holy name. You know, that's a different sort of world. So, you know, now finally, and you know, you knew it was coming, the text. There's six minutes left. We'll just go with it, okay? So you've got it in front of you. Let boast. And I, I scrambled the words a little bit for you. Boast if you want, but you're all going to die. Okay? Which is why, you know, um, we've taken to people who will have it. I don't know if you know this, but we have a form of last rites in our book, which pastors never pull out, because what would happen? Then people would say, you're Catholic, big C. So, you know, for many times, then what happens is you die without the greatest comfort you can have. But um, for those who will have it, you know, we've taken to... Um, giving them what's called the commendation of the dying, which means we come and hear their last confession if they're able, and um, we read psalms into their ears uh, as they begin to die, and we anoint them with the smell, the same smell, the oil that was used at their baptism. So you come into the church and you leave the church exactly the same way, or better to say, you come into life and you leave this life in exactly the same way. And if you can't say anything, perhaps you can hear. And if you can't hear, perhaps you can smell. And then perhaps you'll remember that James says, this is normal stuff, rich or poor, everybody's gonna die. Which means you should probably think differently about um, the performance of the Tao since January 1. And in real time, this could not be better. Because you all, if I'd have said to you, imagine if you'd lost 40% of your retirement, and it looks like your capital gains are probably going to go up, and your income tax rate for many of you. If I'd have said that to you on January 1st, it would have been a nice thinking exercise. When I say it to you now in real time, and then, you know, if I'm so bold as to press you as to ask if that's the reason you're afraid, then... I just put to you the fact that you may be precisely in the point that James is talking about, which is you've bumped into, and you remember that temptation doesn't really get it. We did the Greek last time around. You've bumped into the sifting and the sorting, the experiment as you were. You remember it's the word for running an experiment. You know, The experiment is here, and you're being revealed to yourself and to those around you, and it's possible that some good can come out of this. It's possible that you can be a better person having lost half your wealth. It's possible you'll think differently the next time there's a capital campaign, that you're not defined by your money because your money goes away. It's possible 
that you'll think differently about your career. For example, that you'll get old enough to discover that when you start to think about your own death, you don't think quite so much about money and you think quite a lot more about what, e what impact you've had on your family and the persons around you. That's all he's saying here. He's saying it in a very Hebrew way. They repeat themselves, boom, 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 boom. You can tell he's a Jew because he says it twice so that you'll get the point. If you're poor and you want to boast, go ahead. If you're rich and you want to boast, go ahead. You're all going to drop dead. It's like when the sun comes up in the morning. There's always flowers around, but by the end of the day, they get scorched and you'll get scorched. And um, you're going to fade away in the midst of your pursuits, whatever those happen to be. And then it's fascinating that right after that, I'm right at verse 12 now, it's fascinating that the very next word is <coughs> blessed, which if you're clever now, where have you heard that before? Anybody know? Sermon on the Mount, brilliant. Which for Jesus was then the great equalizer, was it not? He gathers all the disciples in close. It says he gathered his disciples. It wasn't moral teaching for the world. It says he gathered his disciples and he drew them near and he sat them down and he taught them and he said, it doesn't matter what the world looks like, blessed are those who. So James now says exactly what Jesus says. Blessed is the man, and now he runs you through exactly what you've had before, remain steadfast under trial. That's again the same word. This is, these are the words for a sifting, for an experiment. Be blessed are those people who don't come apart in the midst, in the midst of, the, of the experiment. Blessed are, this doesn't mean you know, you're not going to feel the stress. It doesn't mean you're not going to feel afraid. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that there aren't concerns. What it means is the community, Christ, you, respond to the concerns appropriately. This should be the biggest year ever for Christmas sharing. You all probably have the least money you've ever had since I've known you, and this should be the biggest year for Christmas sharing. It should be the biggest year because suddenly you've, you've got just a little taste of what it's like to be poor. You have just a little taste of what it's like to lose Jeff. Just a little taste. I'm not minimizing. I just want you to be really clear. I'm not making fun of people. I'm not minimizing this. I'm saying it's not normally our reality. Okay? This is the sifting. Okay? So in the sifting, it reveals character and it develops character so you know how to engage the world. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. A very strange phrase. I think that only occurs here. It might occur one other place in Scripture, too, which God has promised to those who love him. That's probably about as much as I can do today. I'm going to start with 13 next week. But your exercise, you know, um, I'll, just, I'll just sort of take you on 24, you know. If you just sort of look at 24, we, kinda, we can kind of do this page. We all fade. You know, death is the great equalizer, you know. You know death is the great equalizer. The question is, can we live Christologically uh, when death comes? Can we live Christologically? Do we do, you know, one question to ask yourselves are, do we look too much alike? You know, do we need more poor people? More people of different colored skin? I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of, I'm not sort of, I'm not sort of, what I'm suggesting to you is, I'm just asking you, are we any good at that? Are we any good at absorbing people who aren't all the same? Is it, I know the churches, I mean, you do all the studies. If you want to be a successful pastor with a big church, you know what they tell you to do? Recruit one kind of person. 
just get one, you get, you get white, middle class people who make over $100,000, you'll flourish. You get African American folk, you know, who live together on the south side. You get, just, just keep everybody together, and then you have a lot less problems. Well, the problem with that is, is that's not what the Bible says. I mean, yeah, it works. It's true for anything. If you want to start a club, get a lot of people like you. Nothing to talk about. Or you can just compliment each other all the time. What the text says is, you know, can you live together rich and poor? Can you live together black and white? Can you live together, you know, can you live together? Republican, Democrat, can you live together? Can you see that none of that actually matters when the chips are down? So wealth is a community breaker when it's a preoccupation. When your possessions possess you, you know, when you're up all night all the time thinking about what's happening, you know, the answer should be this community should have resources to help the people who are honestly and legitimately out of work from the people who aren't. That's how the Old Testament worked. Pastor Nelson, I think I told you, he gave, you know, the most brilliant two-minute sermon about uh, economics one Thursday morning Eucharist where he basically said, in the world, economics is meant to build wealth in the church. Economics is meant to build community. That's the reason you couldn't lend money at interest in the Old Testament. It hurts people too much. That's the reason every seven years debts got canceled. That's the reason in the Jubilee year, 50 years, everything got leveled out. Your perspectives would all be different if you had to give your house back to the people you bought it from after seven years or 50 years. You'd think about the world differently. That's what's all behind this. So now how we live from here till there. That's what's it about. How we live in humility. How we live with Christ. You know, how we live until he comes again. And whether or not we can save that life the way James does. That's a blessed life. And that I would suggest to you is the primary disagreement. We've not agreed that this is a blessed life. When we all agree that this is a blessed life, then we have community. When we have different definitions of what blessed is, then we fray. Okay? Which now we're just back to the same old stuff. This is why being in church every Sunday, while being in Bible study is important, by talking with each other is important, by talking to your pastor is important, because we need a common definition of what it is to be blessed, what it is to be community, what it is to be wealthy that doesn't have to be, do with money, what it is to be alive which does not have to do with staying out of hell. Okay? That's how the church is supposed to work. And James isn't ten verses in. And you know what? He's saying it like everybody knows it. So what did we miss? What did we miss? And on the other side, look what we've got to gain. There's hope for us. You might just think about all that and keep reading James as we go. We'll read a little more James and then, you know, we'll read some Paul too, but... Uh, and try to set them side by side. It's just, it couldn't be more apropos to us. So try to take some comfort in that, okay? All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Uh, see you next week.